So, about 20 years ago, when I was a very young adult, um, I went through a long, lonely patch of time. The warm community of friends that I had enjoyed for about four years had dispersed, and all of my peers, it seemed to me, were going on to fabulous lives of purpose and adventure. Well, I was literally living in my parents' basement and trying to make a living um, opening envelopes for a credit card company. Um, my parents had uh, moved away from the town that I grew up. Um, I didn't have any friends there. I was preoccupied with a man I'd been in a long-distance relationship for a while, and it was gradually dawning on me that he just wasn't that into me. Um, it wasn't a dark night of the soul. Um, I wasn't clinically depressed. Um, I was healthy and safe and well provided for, um, but I was lonely. I was, out, was without purpose, without direction, without a future I could see, and life just felt very, very flat. Late one afternoon during the season, I was sitting um, on my bed, my little bedroom, rearranging some books and CDs, not thinking about anything in particular, when suddenly I felt a stab in my heart. Um, not a physical pain, um, but a pain of something like hope and something like joy that seemed to come from nowhere. Um, it startled me. I caught my breath and took a minute to figure out what was going on. And when I figured it out, I felt really let down. Um, all that had happened is a ray of light came in through the little basement window, bounced off the plastic CD case that I was holding and into my eyes. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Um, I remember trying to tell a new friend of mine about a year later about this experience, and I heard myself talking about this plastic CD cover, and I just got really self-conscious. It wasn't even really a story, um, but that was it. Um, obviously, that stuck with me, um, and I don't know if you felt something like this before, like a stab of hope that's so keen and so real that it causes pain, like a little dagger, a little thin one that slips in and out so quickly, it leaves just a sore spot behind, kind of like a wound. Whether you've experienced any, anything similar to that or not, I think most of us carry around with us some sort of hope of connecting with something or someone outside ourselves. A hope that there's more to life than a circle of duties and efforts and routines and even the pleasures that we can lay hold of by ourselves. Um, that hope or belief even, that there's something more than an isolated, detached existence. There's something meaningful and beautiful and real, if only we could connect with, us, with it. For Christian believers, this hope has a shape and a history and even a name, Jesus. A loving God we believe is there, is here, if only we could connect with him. Sometimes the bigger the contrast between our trust in the goodness and glory of God and the smallness we experience in, in ourselves and in our own lives, the more hopeless and vulnerable we feel. So whether your own faith is flourishing this morning or if it's as small as the grain of mustard seed, um, I want to introduce or reintroduce you to the liturgy of the church not for the sake of the liturgy itself, as beautiful and powerful as it is, not everybody's going to geek out over all the specifics of it, um, but we do all need to be awakened to the reality that the liturgy of the church is expressly designed to connect our lives to the life of Jesus. 
What is the liturgy? Liturgy is kind of a clunky word. Um, and for our purposes here, liturgy is just a pattern of worship that the people of God have developed over generations and generations. Hebrews tells us that God rewards those who diligently seek him. And our main text in Isaiah here is directed toward those who are pursuing righteousness and seeking the Lord. How do we do that? What does it mean to seek the Lord? Where might the Lord be found? The gospel reading this morning affirms what we know. Even when God is genuinely close at hand, present everywhere and filling all things, we're still seeing through a glass darkly. We need to be given eyes to see and ears to hear him. The kingdom of God is like a pistachio or a walnut. The nut meat is hidden inside and sometimes it seems tough to get out. As we try to pry the shell off the pistachio or crack open the walnut and dig out all the little pieces from the crevices, we have a wonderful set of tools in the liturgy and the patterns that the church has developed to worship God throughout the generations. And there are many different tools in this set that are both powerful and intricate. We're going to look at just two of them two ways to connect with Jesus. One is by connecting with our history through scripture, and the other is connecting with eternal realities through created matter. Let's look at the beginning of our Isaiah passage here. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, And to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. God is speaking here through Isaiah to a defeated and discouraged people in exile. People in their own period of lonely, empty flatness. And the first thing that he tells them to do is to look at their history. Remember the rock you were hewn from, the quarry you were dug out of. He specifically calls out Abraham and Sarah and all his listeners, both the literal descendants um, who were Isaiah's audience and the spiritual descendants, you and me, we all come in some way from this odd, old, little, dried-up couple. (laughs) You might remember their story. Um, After 90 years of living childless, not child-free, but childless, Sarah overheard three visitors prophesying to her husband that she would have a child within the year. Think about this. Imagine Sarah living with disappointed hope month after month for years on end. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years of unfulfilled hopes. In a society where producing children was a defining purpose for everyone, but especially for women. And then, after that hope was finally crushed completely, carrying around that dead hope for 40 or 50 more years. I don't think the pain for Abraham and Sarah went away as the years marched on and their peers were welcoming grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren into their huge patriarchal families. But then after all this, at the age of 90, the Lord comes along and presses right into that vulnerable spot and says something ridiculous, that Sarah will have a child after all, and her descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. (coughs) Think about what it meant for her to courageously live into that promise, and think of the gift that was to you and me as well. 
We share a common history with Sarah in more ways than one, and God has revealed himself to us in that history. There are a lot of different ways for us to remember our history, but the one I want to point you to is the one that's available to us right here every Sunday morning. The four readings that we do here in church every morning, the Old Testament reading, the Psalm reading, a New Testament reading, and the Gospel reading, they're all arranged in a specific pattern that allows us to cycle through the main stories of Scripture over and over again. It's important to know our own stories, and it's important to know the stories of our fathers and mothers in the faith, as recorded in the Old and New Testaments. But those stories ultimately have their meaning because they're authored and interpreted in the life of Jesus. And in fact, the liturgy has organized all the scripture readings around the story of Jesus himself. Our liturgy could have been organized in a number of different sensible ways. Um, We could read scripture as a sort of systematic theology. Um, We could read passages to encourage us to exhibit moral behavior. Um, We could tell the story of just salvation history from Genesis through Revelation. Um, Now, we get all of that in the scriptures, but the actual organizing principle behind the readings is to allow us to live life with Jesus, following him through his story. Sarah suffered. She died to the hope of bearing children, and then that hope was resurrected through the power of the Lord. And as incredible as her story is in its own right, it happened on the way to the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it really can only be truly understood in the light of that larger story. So every year in the church calendar, we walk with Jesus through his story. As Father Aaron mentioned, in two weeks, the church begins its new year on the first Sunday of Advent. Um, If you look at the insert in your bulletin, um, it's tucked in there pretty neatly. Um, You can see uh, the cycle of the church year illustrated. And we'll just take a quick tour through that right now. We begin in Advent in a state of longing and desire for Jesus, simultaneously looking backward to his birth when he came as a small and vulnerable baby and looking forward to his second coming when he'll come again in power and judgment. Purple is the color of Advent, and purple always means get ready. The king is coming. Purple is for royalty and readiness so that Jesus will find us waiting and working when he comes. Christmas is the first feast of the Christian year. The two Sundays following Christmas Day are white for celebration and glory and joy. Epiphany comes on the 12th day after Christmas when the church celebrates the revelation of who Jesus is and the salvation he brings to all of us. Shortly after Epiphany, Lent begins. Lent is purple again as we prepare ourselves for the king and make straight paths for him by heeding his call to repentance, accompanied with prayer and fasting. Holy Week is the most sacred time of the church's year, when we slow down, quiet ourselves, and take the time to look closely and deeply at the passion of Jesus, walking with him as he washes the disciples' feet and gives his final instructions, witnessing Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial, seeing the suffering of Jesus under Pontius Pilate, hearing his last words on the cross, and witnessing his death. And then, Easter. Easter is the high feast of the Christian year. Easter is white and gold and flowers and our fanciest clothes and ringing bells and dancing. 
It's a great big celebration that lasts for 50 days. The 40 days of Lent always seem long, particularly if I'm abstaining from something comfortable or delicious. Um, but the Easter season is even longer. It's 50 days as a foretaste of the coming feast that will have no end at all. At that 50-day mark is Pentecost, when after the ascension of Jesus into heaven, the Holy Spirit came upon the people of God and the church was born. After Easter and along with Christmas, the Feast of Pentecost is one of the three most important days in our church year. The color is red for the tongues of fire that rested on the heads of the apostles. These events in the life of Jesus are the main focus for the first half of the Christian year. The second half of the Christian year, between Pentecost and Advent, is green. Green is the color of life and growth. And here we live through the ministry years of Jesus. All that happened between his baptism and his death and resurrection. All the teachings and the miracles and the relationships and the conversations that he had. These are days for our discipleship, for our spiritual formation, for quietly and faithfully following the example of Jesus in our ordinary lives. And in fact, these green Sundays are called ordinary time. In this way, the liturgy connects our lives to the person of Jesus by drawing us deeper and deeper into his story with every cycle of the year. We'll look now at Isaiah 6, uh, verse 6, that is. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. In this verse, we see our second tool, which is the way that the liturgy connects us to eternal realities through created matter. What is God saying here? He says, lift up your eyes and look at the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. Here and all throughout scripture, God calls our attention to creation. Why? There's a very common saying in the Anglican church that matter matters. Stuff, matter, flesh, blood, our bodies, the earth, the creatures, air, fire, water, sunshine. It all matters deeply to the God who created it and blessed it and to our Lord Jesus who was spirit and became matter. It's important. Nowhere in scripture do we get the impression that the physical world is bad or meaningless. Never make the mistake that only spiritual things matter, because it's not true. Matter is declared good by God and is pregnant with meaning and sanctified in the person of Jesus. However, we also know that physical things are temporary. The heavens and the earth and our bodies are all wearing out. The salvation and the word of God are eternal. And while the unseen spiritual realities are not necessarily more important, they may actually, in some sense, be more real. Since the days of Moses, the people of God have understood that the physical place of worship was designed to be a place to draw near to the holy presence of God. But in Hebrews, it's made clear to us that these physical things have meaning beyond themselves. 
Our Hebrews passage this morning follows a reference to Exodus and God's very elaborate and very specific instructions to Moses about how the tabernacle of God is to be crafted. If you have time this afternoon, take a closer look at Hebrews, particularly chapters 9 through 11, and look at all the references to the relationship between the seen earthly stuff and the unseen heavenly stuff, and listen to how they compare. It says, Christ entered through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. The holy places made with hands are copies of the true things in heaven. The earthly law is but a shadow of good things to come, not the true forms of these realities. God lives in a single unified reality. It's really only for us that the world seems divided into seen and unseen things. Romans says directly that God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now, obviously, the fullest expression of God is found in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who bridged the seen and unseen realities in himself. And we actually live out this incredible reality every time we eat and drink the Lord's Supper. The first half of every service where we connect with Jesus through history is called the Liturgy of the Word. The second half is called the Liturgy of the Table, where we connect with Jesus through created matter, bread and wine. Two weeks ago, our reader team illustrated for us the passage in 1 Kings where Elijah was fed by angels. Tyler, who masterminds many of the readings in Emmanuel, told me that he considered um, having our Elijah reader use one of the loaves of communion bread to stand in for the warm cakes that the angels brought. Now, they decided for various reasons to use a granola bar instead. But using communion bread for that passage is a sound interpretive instinct. The food that was miraculously provided for Elijah by God to sustain his life in a dark, isolated desert That is a foreshadowing of the ultimate provision of God for us, made through the flesh and blood of his son Jesus, given for us and given to bring us life. And if you had anything for breakfast this morning, or you eat anything at lunch this afternoon, well, that's not a miracle in the sense that God is suspending or circumventing the laws of the natural laws that he established. But the blunt fact is, even when our food comes to us through natural means, it is still a gift of God. It is still provision made for us by a supernatural being. It's just being given to us in ways that we've become very accustomed to. Our ordinary breakfast toast is a gift from God that connects us to the extraordinary warm bread that the angels gave to Elijah, which in turn points us to the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, the sacrifice of Jesus, who is the full revelation of God given for us. Orthodox priest Stephen Freeman wrote, In the God-man, Jesus Christ, heaven and earth are united, and the distance between God and man of whatever sort is overcome. If angels can close the gap between the visible and invisible realities for Elijah and supernaturally provide natural bread for him to eat, how much more has Jesus 
already closed the gap for us between the earthly kingdom and the heavenly one. That gap, the one we keep trying to close with our clumsy or wistful attempts to connect with Jesus, has in fact already been overcome by Jesus. All that's left for us to do is to receive this truth by grace through faith, even faith as small as a mustard seed. Each Sunday we receive the real presence of Jesus into our bodies as a gift through the bread and wine that is his body and blood. Let's turn now to some of the last verses in our text. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. The truth is that connecting with Jesus has already been done by him. If we have accepted him by faith, all that's left for us to do is to live into that reality with courage. So the title of this sermon, Connecting with Jesus Through the Liturgy, is a little bit of a misnomer. It's not really our job to connect with Jesus through the liturgy or by any other means. But we do participate in that connection by courageous acts of worship. I didn't lead with the word worship in the title because it's pretty abstract. I'm almost never aware of my need to worship, but I am frequently aware of a desire to connect with Jesus. And it is in worship that we are most in touch with him and with eternal realities. The work, the root of the word liturgy is Greek, and it roughly translated is the work of the people. The work of worship is declaring the worthiness of Jesus, and it's not just done by the musicians and the preacher and the folks out front here. It happens in every act that we do of looking, listening, attending to Jesus in worship. If you want an easy way to remember how to worship, you can grab a pen and circle these words or just point to them with your finger in our text. Take in the words that God himself is saying. Listen to me. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham and to Sarah. Give attention to me. Give ear to me. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. Listen to me. Fear not. Awake, awake, and put on strength. In short, we worship by paying attention to God and to ascribing to him worth in that. To see Jesus, to recognize him as being at the heart of all of history and the heart of all creation. This takes courage. I don't know about you, but it's fairly rare that people revile and reproach me as I'm worshiping Jesus. It does happen, but more commonly, I'm carrying around these reproaches and revilings in my own head. We live and breathe in a world that makes hope and faith fearful and vulnerable endeavors. When I hear myself talking about how a flash flight off a CD cover filled me with hope and joy that comes from beauty, doubt is right there telling me that sunlight's just sunlight that waves or particles are bouncing against the rods and cones on my retina and stimulating stuff in my brains and synapses and whatever. 
I hear voices saying that the lonely, flat isolation of life is all there is. How audacious is it to claim and proclaim that that light is just a shadow of the light of the world, Jesus, who has come into the world? How audacious it is to worship him because of that. Brothers and sisters, come confidently and expectantly to church. When the dagger thrusts of hope and joy make you fearful and vulnerable, know that Jesus is near, near to you in real life history and in real life created matter, and that he has done everything necessary to connect you to himself. Now hear the word of the Lord to all those who clothe themselves with the courage to worship him. The Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.